If you would, please take your Bibles out and open them up to Psalm 1. That's where we're going to be this morning as we think about the new year, we think about the Lord's Supper. Uh, eventually, I promise you, we will get back to Romans, God willing, next Sunday. When I began to think about what would be a fitting way to worship together this Lord's Day and to think about what would be a good preparation passage for the supper, but also what would be in real keeping with what we just spent Advent talking about. As you know, if you were with us, I spent some time talking through Genesis 3 and the sin coming into the world, what it has done to humanity. But when we looked at Genesis 3 verse 15, it introduces what many people call the proto-gospel or the first gospel about the enmity between the serpent and the woman and that her seed shall be at war with his seed, and there will be bruising and crushing going on. And what that does is that sets a theme up that then is very much pervasive throughout the rest of Scripture. It's called seed theology, just to be technical. And what it does is it talks about the constant war that is waged between the remnant of God and the kingdom of darkness. And so, when you, when you understand that framework, when you see that framework, it begins to take shape in how you read Scripture and in how you watch things uh, become clear or unveiled through Scripture. And one of the clearest examples of what I'm telling you this morning happens to be Psalm 1. Psalm 1 being an introductory psalm to the entire Psalter, Psalm 1 being a wisdom psalm to teach us what does it mean to live wisely. Psalm 1, giving us principles of truth for what does it mean to be in relationship with God and, and what must that look like? How must we live in light of that? Psalm 1, giving us the consequences of what happens when one takes the pathway of the seed of the serpent and denies the truth of Scripture. And so you have a rich reminder of what it means that when God tells Eve, I'm going to place enmity, or the serpent rather, between your seed and the woman's seed, and he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel, he is setting up a story, beloved. And, and by story, I don't mean something that could feasibly be fake or false. He's setting up a story for life, a story in which you now find yourself in a story where there is real good and real bad, and, and we find ourselves caught between those, though we are walking in the light if we are in Christ. But what does it mean? Is it just a simple ho-hum down the yellow brick road and life is bubblegum and cotton candy? Well, you just have to live a little while to know that that's not true. So if that's not true, and we have real evil, real darkness, real hardship to face, where do we draw strength. From where do we draw strength? And this is the beauty of Psalm 1, as it lays out what it means to be righteous, what it means to be rescued, what it means to be the people of God. And so, as we contemplate this first Sunday of 2024, what it means to be the people of God, Psalm 1 will lead us in this endeavor. So without further delay, let's turn our attention to the passage itself, Psalm 1. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So ends the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing. Please pray with me. Father, Your Word is before us this morning. Use it to deepen our roots, to help us grow, to help us understand the rich beauty of what it means to walk in godliness to reject worldliness, to embrace holiness. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. As I said to you, Psalm 1 is technically a wisdom psalm. It's teaching us what wisdom is. It's teaching us what godliness is. And so in that way, it's setting the pace for what the rest of the psalms will do. The rest of the psalms will spend the other, uh, you know, 149 of them how many psalms are there? 150? Yes, okay, so I was right. That scared me for a second. I thought there's only 146 psalms, but anyway, I promise you I know this stuff. Um, the other 149 of them are, are, are kind of laying out or fleshing out the truths that we find in Psalm 1. It's giving us a sense of what does it mean to be righteous, and does that mean that we will always walk floating on air with halos, bright shining, and doing everything right. No, you will find the psalmist many times saying, I failed, or how long, O Lord, or restore to me the joy of your salvation. So Psalm 1 is getting, giving us that beautiful pillar of the ideal and, and the truth of the people of God. We live in a world that is driven by something, not this. That's a very profound statement, right? We live in a world driven by outward experience, outward look of things, the outward appearance of things. And what Psalm 1 is wanting to do is go to the heart of the matter. We live in a world that is external. Things are appealing and stunning insofar as they are visually appealing and stunning. But what does God really want to do in His people, beloved? He wants to change us from the inside out. He wants to transform us through a metamorphosis-like process that begins working in the heart. And so when we think about what is our worth, what is real beauty, what is real wisdom, well, you really get it in Psalm 1. In fact, Psalm 1 could be kind of a commentary on the book of Ruth, kind of a commentary on Proverbs 31 when we think about the woman of worth or we think about the, the eshethchayl, the, the, the wife of noble character, but it's also a commentary on what it means to just be God's people and to be people who are noble of character and people who are sufficiently rooted in the truth of God. And so when you look at the sequence of this, it's very straightforward. You could really take this in three couplets. Uh, if you look at the way the psalm is structured, the first couple of verses, the first two verses are laying down a truth principle. 
The second two verses are, are giving us what it means to be the good life, what it is the good life. And the third set of verses, the third two verses, are really talking about the end of all things. It's very simple and straightforward, and it's meant to be so. It's meant to capture, hey, here's the truth, here's what, how that truth lived out looks like, and here's why that truth lived out is important, because there is a judgment coming. But when we start here, as he says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So the very first thing the psalmist does for us is talk about what does it mean, what is blessing? That, ver- or that word there could also be translated happy. It's an interesting word. It's not the typical word that you would have in, in Hebrew for blessing, although it is a common word used in that way. But the idea here, this blessing that I want us to understand that the psalmist does for us, this type of blessing, this type of happiness, this type of rich fulfillment that the psalmist is talking about cannot be divorced from submission and fidelity to Yahweh. It can't be. So when we start talking about this type of joy, this type of blessing, this type of happiness, this type of fulfillment and satisfaction, it cannot be divorced from submission and fidelity to Yahweh. That is an important foundational stone to this entire psalm of understanding why is the man blessed? Why, why does the, should the man not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers? And the answer is because the blessed man, the blessed woman, the fulfilled, happy, satisfied man or woman is committed to Yahweh, and we have an obligation to Him. But I love the idea, this word blessed there, there is a, there's a certain notion of contentedness to it. What are we contented in? Well, the righteous man is contented, or the righteous woman is contented. They have contented themselves in the goodness of God, in the centrality of who God is. So that's not just merely an academic thought. It's I find my utmost contentment in the fact that God is, period, and I am His, period. Those two thoughts are beautiful and interwoven, but each stands alone on its own merit. God is, and I am His. Now, because God is, I am His, but let those two stand on themselves. So when we think about this happiness, I'm going to use that word even though I don't love it. It's not, it's not a great descriptive word here, but let's just talk about happiness for a second. The blessedness, this happiness, it's grounded in what? Not my ability to gain things, not my ability to, to get what I want or need in the character and goodness of God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. That's what the psalmist says, that the happiness that this sort of contentedness, this sort of satisfaction, this real sense of, yes, this is my belonging, is all about who God is and not who we are, beloved. And and, and that's a struggle because so many of the quests that we go on to try to find worth or happiness or comfort, they, they end in what can we get for ourselves, where the psalmist says, let it begin and end and who God is. That's a hard one to to do because 
we are so, it's just so ingrained in our minds that we have to capture it for ourselves. And the psalmist says, hey, let's just begin by understanding who God is and what that means for us in our lives. But here's what he says. He's got this progression, you know, do not walk, do not stand, do not sit. So don't walk, stand, or sit. So right out of the gate in this psalm, we're getting the negative first. He's telling us what not to do. So you, this is a common paradigm in the Bible. Paul will say, put off, put on. The psalmist here is saying, do not walk. And then later he will come back and give us the positive. So do not walk, stand, or sit. And so if we're going to think about what does it mean to be faithful, if, if we're going to talk about what does it mean to walk in godliness, beloved, one of the first aspects of that means what is it that we need to avoid? Now, just simply avoiding things does not make one holy. I want to say that again. Just simply avoiding things does not make one holy. Yet, if one is to pursue holiness, there are some things we have to avoid. Because part of the problem in historic Christianity is we will see groups of people, and they're still among us today, who think, as long as I don't do X, Y, or Z, I am holy. And we have to say, no. That's part of it. But part of holiness is not doing, but also doing. So there is a not do and a do aspect to holiness. But at the very least, one of the things that we're called to do is to be different from the world, to not pursue the things of the world. And when he gives us this, this, this little trifecta here, the, the sinner, the wicked, and the scoffer, who are these people? We don't need to meet out every one of these words to understand who they are. These are people who have arrayed themselves against God. They've rebelled against God and His Word. And in some cases, some of these ideas we see in our world may be attractive. They may have the, the look of wisdom or even the look of morality. But the question we as believers have to ask is, is this in keeping with God's Word? Not is this palatable, not is this easy, not will this help someone feel more comfortable. Look, I'm not about making people feel uncomfortable. Well, kind of I am. I, not, I do think it's kind of funny sometimes, but not very funny when it happens to me. So I'm just confessing my own hypocrisy. Um, I lost my train of thought here. But what we want to do is we, we, we want to understand that of whatever, however good the world's wisdom may look, there is a certain aspect to it that denies who God is. So the sinner, the wicked, or the scoffer, they may be relevant to culture, but beloved, is it leading us to holiness? We are living in a time where people are telling us, hey, you're going to be on the wrong side of history if you choose this. You're not in keeping with, with the crowd. You're being phobic or you're being hateful. And yet, at the end of the day, we have to lovingly stand in the truth. Right? That's, that's what 24, 2024 has for you, and it has for me. And if Jesus tarries and you survive to 2025, you will have the same charge and I will have the same charge in 2026, and so forth and so on, until one or the other happens, either we die or Jesus comes back. So th this is going to be our life mission until we pass from this earth. But if you'll take special note here, what, what, what the psalmist is saying is, is that communion with such people is going to lead to death. Now, we have to reach out. We have to share truth with the world. But, beloved, we've got to remember, we don't 
We don't keep counsel with the wicked. We don't go in the way of sinners. And we don't sit in the seat of scoffers. In other words, we don't become that in our attempt to reach that. We have to maintain our holiness and godliness. Because I'll tell you, before us this morning is the table, and the body and the blood sit on display for us to contemplate. Jesus did not give His life so that we could look just like the world. He gave His life so that though we are in the world, we would not be of the world, but yet we would preach Christ to the world. And that we would do that in all the love that Christ gives us. Standing in truth, uncompromising in the principles and precepts of Jesus. Because those who go the way of the world, we just need to know, they turn away from God. To go the way of the world is to turn away from God, and we have numerous examples of this in Scripture. So these first two verses, maybe you've memorized Psalm 1. You're like, oh yeah, this is iconic. I know this. I know this. But it's so helpful to come back to say, not only do we not walk in those ways or sit in those ways or stand in those ways, but the Word of God has to really shape us. So the positive side of this is, is that we delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on His law day and night. So this delight, what is this? This, this pleasure. If you delight in something, you really enjoy it. It's something that you look forward to. It's something that, that brings you a sense of well-being and happiness. And we all have different things in which we delight, but the psalmist here says, baseline, our delight needs to be in the Lord. Our delight needs to be in the law of the Lord. And when we hear law here, don't just think of Torah, even though that is actually the Hebrew word used. Think of the Lord's word and His prescriptions for life and righteousness. The Lord's word and His prescriptions for life and righteousness. But don't just delight in it, beloved. We can't just say, wow, this, I really love this. Meditate on it. And I'm not talking about a mindless Eastern type of meditation where you center your chi and all that nonsense. I'm talking about an active engagement of your mind and heart in the Word of God, that you're imbibing it, you're drinking it in. It's washing over you day and night. It's washing, it's playing out through your mind that we're keeping it before us. And listen, this is what Brad is not saying. I'm not saying you're not a real Christian if you're not reading the Word all the time every day. It's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is if you're going to stand firm in Christian conviction, the Word needs to be a part of your life every day. We should spend time in it. Man, may, maybe it's you listening to it on your way to work. There are many wonderful ways to, to imbibe the Word of God. Maybe it's taking a lunch break to read through it. Maybe it's waking up a little earlier to drink it in. Maybe it's availing yourself to more study in Sunday mornings or in, throughout the week to drink in the Word. Well, it doesn't have to be fancy, but we need to be meditating on it to secure our roots. Why? Because the Word of God will determine what we'll do and what we won't do. It should. It's supposed to do that. It's supposed to be the means by which we order our lives. It, it directs our steps. And you know what else it does? It corrects our missteps. When was the last time that you've come back, you've come away from the Word of God and you realized, 
I've made a misstep. I need to correct that. Maybe, I, that. maybe that means I need to go to someone else. Maybe that means I need to change my patterns of thinking. Or maybe it means both of those. But the Word of God is meant to do that. It's meant to transform us, that we might meditate on it. And if we were ever going to stand in the day of evil and truly stand against it, beloved of God, this is what we must do. This is what we have to do. Yes, this morning, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you who sit here, you are free indeed, and you are saved by His merit alone. But what does the merit and righteousness of Christ compel us to do? To work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And that means standing in the evil day in the righteousness of Christ. That means standing before the masses of what is wicked in the good and true right word of Jesus. It is not easy, but it's the right call. It's the right way to go. This is the God word life. So those, those principles of truth become foundational and then we build. So, so the psalmist then transitions into, all right, so you've, you've got these truth principles. What is the practical reality or the practical outcome of that? Well, when one delights himself in the law of the Lord and meditates on it often, the psalmist answers the question, what, is that, what does that do? Well, this one, he, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. But then here's the contrast. But the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. So what, what you, can very, you can see exactly. You don't need me to explain this to you. You can see the two pictures you get of a tree rooted by a stream being nourished and chaff, the waste of grain that is so thin and hollow and worthless, you can throw it up in the air and the wind will drive it away. It has no root. It has no mooring. It has no value. A tree will give its leaves. It will give its fruit. It will supply things that are useful. The chaff is completely unuseful. So this blessing becomes realized in the good life, and this good life has vitality. The tree is strong. It's rooted. It's firmly planted. It's able to be sustained. When you think of something, a tree that is rooted in the ground, that's growing, that's drawing sustenance, it becomes a symbol of strength. You don't have, we don't have the words mighty oak for no reason. That's a hard wood. It is a symbol of strength. Now, they will fall over pretty easily, so let's don't carry that metaphor too far. But these trees that the psalmist is writing about is just when you look at it, you're looking at something beautiful, something rich, something that has grown and prospered and that has value. That is what those rooted in the Lord have. The, the, the fruit is the evidence that it's being nourished, that it's full of life. It stands out as healthy. When you've seen a sick tree and you see a healthy tree, there is no mistaking which one is sick and which one is healthy. You can tell. You don't, you don't have to be uh, some special plant expert to see it. I couldn't think of the name of it. That's why I just said plant expert. <clears throat> you see the leaves. they are signs of life. And you see the leaves that, that let you know that the, the tree is filled 
with richness and good. That tree stands as the product of God. Beloved, you and I, we're called to be trees in God's forest, trees that have been planted specifically by God, that have been placed by the streams of the living water of Jesus Christ, that have plenty of foliage to show covering, that have fruit, fruit that we didn't make grow, that grew because of God's grace that is meant to be a sign of life and help and hope to other people. We are trees who bear fruit in God's kingdom. That's why Jesus died, is to draw us in from a place of death to the good place of life. But when he talks about the wicked, see, they're not so. And it's often hard for us because we see them and we see seeming prosperity. And some prosperity. In this world, they're often prosperous. This is where we have to be reminded, what does the Bible say of those who have embraced and imbibed wickedness? They're like chaff. They're blown about by any wind. They have no mooring. They have no anchor. Their value, they they produce no fruit. They give no shade. They're not a good, strong, hard substance. They're hollow. They're easy to dispose of. That is what the Bible says of wickedness. It's weak, it's useless, it's without value. It's not rooted, it's driven away. And so when we are tempted to despair by what we see around us, should we lament what we see around us? Yes. It should make us sad. It should make us sad what we see outside of us and sometimes what we see inside of us. But we should never be afraid of it or jealous of it because, beloved, that wickedness is being driven to the judgment of God. And it will all have to give an account for itself one day, and it will not have the merit of Christ to hold out before it. It will have its own works, and its own works have been pronounced as accursed by God. I do not say that lightly or with any sense of glee or joy. I say it as soberly as I can. Because, see, as light, we are trying to appeal to those being driven by the wind and say, come and find your mooring in Christ. So the good life, the good life is the Godward life. And sometimes, for you younger ones among us, it's hard for you to latch on to that. And the problem is, is you just haven't lived long enough and faced enough tragedy and crisis yet to really understand that the good life is not on TikTok, right? There are some funny things on TikTok. The good life is not on TikTok. It's not on Instagram. It's not on, well, that's not Twitter anymore, X. It's not on any of these Snapchat, all all these things that give us snapshots of what the world would tell us is the good life is just not there. And you only learn that through time and hardship and crisis and renewal and crisis and renewal and falling back down and getting back up and crisis and renewal and joy and sorrow and lament and and rejoicing and joy and and sorrow. And you just, that's where we learn it. We learn it that in every dip, in every rise, Christ remains consistent. And so when we grasp that, 
And we begin to see it. And we see the table laid out from us. It's not just a wafer of bread. It's not just a little cup of juice. These things become the reality of life given to us through Christ that remains constant through all the valleys and peaks. That's what the psalmist is getting at here. It's driving us to that reality. And it's beautiful, hard, but beautiful. He wraps this psalm up this morning but as we get ready to go to the supper. He says, therefore, what is, the, what is the ending result of all this? We've given the truth principle. We've given the prescription for the good life and the reality of the bad life. What is the end of it all? Find so much rich knowledge and theology in, in six little verses. What is the end of it all? Therefore, since the rest of this is true, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That is one of the most sobering things that you and I could read in Scripture. It's, it's extreme comfort by, uh, uh, balanced by extreme sobriety. Wow, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will, not might, not could, will perish. It will. It's coming to an end. And so the judgment of God is a real and pressing matter. The wicked, they can't stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Why? Because the weight of glory will not allow them to. They can't. Because no one can stand in the judgment who comes to stand by his or her own merit. Oh, beloved, the weight of the glory of God is too pressing. That's why we need that mediator, Christ, who gave his body and shed his blood to come and to cloak us in that righteousness so that when we stand in the judgment, we stand on Christ and nothing else. We stand on His righteousness, His merit, His glory, His goodness. The temporal successes that we see around us, they don't translate into eternal bliss. They just don't. Hey, if you're successful, God bless you. Enjoy it. And I hope you rejoice. That's not where your worth is. As long as we can keep that straight, wonderful. Real success, real, real joy doesn't come from anything we can muster here. Because what we muster here, this passage says, it perishes, right? It perishes. So we are called into something richer, better. The sinner, he says, the one who rebels against God, that's the idea here, has no community with the righteous. Why? Because as those who have been called out of the world, but to live in the world, there is a certain sense of sacredness that has been imputed to us, to God's people. Not that we're better. That's not what I'm saying. I, I, I am not saying that we are somehow better. We are redeemed. And redemption, the redeemed, what is sacred, has no natural fellowship with what is profane. Now, what that does mean is, is those who are sacred need to be reaching out to those who are still lost for their own good. But our community, beloved, let's just be honest, it's, it becomes exclusive. Not that you can't have friendships with people outside the body of Christ, but the body of Christ becomes our primary focus. Because we are God's people. 
and we are called to live together in, in unity and community. And so let that love drive us to reach out, to look at people and say, I would rather be disliked by you and teach you the truth than to have your love and silently let you walk into the judgment. I'm not saying our words are ever going to change most people's heart. They probably won't. But, beloved, we are called to stand boldly for the Lord so that those who are marching and skipping down the way of death might hear the truth and they might see Christ. So what is Psalm 1 doing for us? It's highlighting a struggle, a cosmic struggle, a struggle that started back in Genesis 3 that weaves its way all through the historical books, all through Judges. You see that seed theology, that struggle between good and evil in Judges, and all the way through the prophets, the constantly dealing with what is evil, all the way through the poetry books, through Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon and Job, all the way right down through the minor prophets who are constantly dealing with evil, and they lead us to one beautiful truth. When we see the struggle laid out in the Old Testament so clearly, what is Psalm 1 pointing us to? To Matthew chapter 1, where you get a big list of names that culminate with the name of Jesus Christ who said, what is the answer to the wickedness in our world? It is Jesus. The Jesus who is represented on this table, who was born into the world to give up His body, to shed His blood so that those who are lost might be found, for those who are treading out in wickedness might be brought to righteousness, and for those who delight in themselves, might delight in the Lord. What a gift and what a rich privilege now we have here in just a moment to share the supper together and to remember and to participate in what Christ has done. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for today and for this time together and for your mercies and uh, for Jesus. I thank you for the rich truth of who he is and what he's done and the rescue that He has brought to us all. We are Yours, O oh Lord. We are found in You if we are in You this morning, and we pray, God, that we stand firmly there. Father, many temptations will pursue us this year, but You tell us goodness and mercy will pursue us all the days of our lives and that we will dwell in Your house forever. Let us believe that and not the lies of the world. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.